Did you know that the U.S. Department of Energy runs 17 national labs that pursue energy and climate-related research? These laboratories are responsible for many of the innovations we use today and will be a critical part of our clean energy future. This is the Lovers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Geo. Today's guest is Judd Verdon, the Associate Laboratory Director for Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Our wide-ranging conversation spanned topics such as how do you create an innovative pipeline when we're looking at problems with 30-year horizons? How do you create an innovation pipeline when we're trying to solve problems with 30-year horizons? And how do you turn data into something that people will want to use? Now, let's listen to how the national laboratory systems, since their founding after World War II, has continued their mission to pursue big science. Well, Judd, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Good to be here, Jimmy. Looking forward to it. I wanted to start off with a quote by Nancy Kress, who is a Hugo and Nebula Award-winning science fiction author, where she once said that science fiction is a rehearsal for possible futures. And at Pacific Northwest National Labs, I think you're rehearsing for possible futures every day. How do you relate to that quote yourself? Oh, I love science fiction, and I, I, you know, I believe part of our job as a national lab, which is a lab that performs long-term R&D, that we should be performing R&D that gets you both excited and nervous, and should have a little bit of that's not possible, and then after some period of time, we show that it is practical and possible. Yeah, what are some of those crazy ideas that that you think? Are, is perfectly logical, but to an outsider might think of as incredibly crazy and unfeasible. Well, I think, you know, in the past, some of the examples have been, if you go back, you know, when I started my career in the, the national lab system is photovoltaics. Won't be practical, too expensive, will never make it to market. And here, 25 years later, they are. Um, you could even include work that national labs did in fracking on natural gas. And that's just completely changed our energy landscape in the last decade. Energy storage falls in that space. The idea of demand response on the grid, where you could manage the load in real time because we've got state-of-the-art sensors, we've got data analytics, and now machine learning were unheard of 10, 15, 20 years ago, and it's all becoming reality. One of my tests is if somebody says you can't do it, that's we might be in the right space. Let's start talking about frameworks for decision-making. In our prep call, we talked about that five-step plan for deep decarbonization. What is it and how does it influence your work? At the highest levels, what we always try to do, at least the way I think about kind of managing the energy and environmental portion of the lab is, you know, are we really working on a big national or global problem? One that is just is so, so important to society that it just can't be ignored. And, and certainly you'd have to put energy resiliency of the US system and deep decarbonization into that bucket. And then if you start breaking deep decarbonization down, you could be looking at you know energy efficiency just to reduce the load, electrifying everything that you need to, to deal with. You know, there's also the idea that if you can't electrify it, what would you 
use instead, and that comes to waste carbon or biofuels, especially for aviation, the heavy duty sector. There's decarbonizing the electricity sector, you know, which is very specific. And then there's kind of the global management of carbon in the oceans and the terrestrial land. Those kind of big buckets shape kind of the strategy. But then for me, what I do is I break it down into, it's an important problem. Is it a, I'm at a Department of Energy National Lab. You know, our mission is science, energy, and national security. Does it fall in that bucket? And then I start to say, if it does, are there really significant S&T challenges that either U.S. industry or academia won't take on that are multidisciplinary long-term? That falls in the national lab kind of bin. And what's S&T, just to clarify? Yeah, that's science and technology. You know, and kind of the, the domain we live in is, is a national lab is science, technology, you know, some deployment. We don't live in the policy landscape or the regulatory landscape. Yeah, and I know the national labs were founded in a time of big science when they were used to convene a lot of players. And I think we've lost the idea of big science in the last couple of years. How do you continue to advocate for big science when things tend to get fragmented and siloed into small buckets? Yeah, you know, as you mentioned, if I, if I can go back in the history of the National Labs, we were you know, really formed through the Manhattan Project mm. and the nuclear energy and defense and the commercial side of it back in the 40s when Enrique Fermi, at least at my lab, came out to the Hanford site to build one of the first large-scale nuclear reactors, which is a national monument. And if you're a fan of, of nuclear history, it is a must-see national park now. And uh, it's a, a fantastic thing to see the B reactor. But the labs grew up supporting that longer-range mission. And over time, they built bigger and bigger scientific instruments to support not only nuclear physics and nuclear energy, but all aspects of big science and technology. I think what happened is the national labs, in my view, disappeared behind the fence up until about the 1990s. And then when the Cold War ended and the nuclear production mission um, was no longer a primary focus. We came out and became that bridge to build big capabilities for the entire U.S. to maintain U.S. competitiveness, cutting-edge research, science, and technology, and partner with universities. And I'm happy to say, I think over the last 10 years, the message has been getting out, and the role of the national labs in that space has been highlighted, certainly in the, the last 10 years. So I, I think it's harder and harder, as you say, Jimmy, to do really big science, but a lot of the tools are in place. And now so much of science and technology is about putting things together in unique ways to solve problems. That's right. So much of our energy systems are really a systems of systems challenge. And yet you have to be able to demonstrate and pilot and prove out these cases. You can get to your theoretical efficiencies in research labs, but once you put it into a real-world application, rarely do you ever reach the calculated efficiencies or the demonstrated efficiencies. How much do the national labs play in the role of demonstration projects and pilot projects across the entire system? Yeah, that's a, a really a good question. And I would say, you know, it varies. But in general, the way the department is set up, there's a big portion of it, which is discovery based. And that's usually the, the Office of Science work where they have those cutting edge, one of a kind instruments, world leading computers, world leading data analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence. Then there's the applied domains that take all that fundamental science and start to apply them to those technologies that you just mentioned. 
And then a, a big portion of that portfolio of government funding is with industry to do those demonstrations, to show those early technologies can perform at the nameplate value, to buy down the risk. So by the time U.S. industry picks them up and takes them out to market, they have confidence in the performance and they actually also have confidence in the cost you know, of the technology as well. You've alluded to having been in this sector for such a long time, several decades now. And in 2008, you co-authored report on setting the foundations to transform the U.S. energy system. What I find interesting is the three recommendations that came out of there, transforming the national electric network, decarbonizing the energy economy, and creating better assessment tool for climate policy. That seems to be still true today, and we're still working on those issues. How has, do you think, the context changed? Uh, are we still working on these issues because we haven't made progress or have we made progress and we're now working on the current generations of those issues? The big framework hasn't changed. On the climate side, we still face the same challenges that we did 20 or 30 years ago, but we've made tremendous strides forward in energy efficiency, new technologies. Look at the renewable revolution that's going on right now. Perhaps not as fast as we would have liked, and not as systemic across you know, all parts of the energy sector. You look at the transition to natural gas uh, from coal, that's happened in the last decade, that's had a huge impact on emission reductions within the country. Doesn't get us all the way there, but it, it certainly has had a big impact. So I think we're on, we're on the right path, but just not at the right pace that people would see. And that's a, that's a bigger question than science and technology. Do you think that the overarching objective function has stayed the same and we are slowly chipping away at that problem, you know, whether it's fast enough or, or too slow? Or do you think that objective function of where we're trying to get to has shifted over time as well? You know, at the highest level, I tend to take the long view. I think the objective function is more or less the same. The how we get there sometimes changes. So the second part of that report that you mentioned, the grid. To me, the grid is, the, is just central to any future, certainly in this country, whether you talk about an energy resiliency or you talk about a deep decarbonization strategy. If you're a fan of all distributed renewables or centralized renewables or energy storage or energy efficiency, this new digitized grid, this revolution we're going on information on the grid, that is what's going to transform us. And, and the biggest case in point for me is electric vehicles. So here's some big game changers that didn't exist 20 years ago. You know, the idea that electric vehicles could be at cost parity with the internal combustion engine and maybe performance in the next 10 years. And maybe we'll be outselling internal combustion engines in 20 to 25 years. And so we're taking 20 to 30 percent of our primary energy consumption and moving it from oil to electrons. That grid at the transmission and distribution side is just going to be absolutely critical. For sure. And hardening it and making sure it's distributed appropriately and that the electrons are getting routed the right ways. And, and cybersecurity too, Jimmy. Cybersecurity is going to be just paramount. Yeah, I'm going to get to that one. That deserves its own conversation and topics for sure. PNNL has so many different projects. And just under your directorate, there's perhaps dozens and dozens of projects you know, looking at Voltron, transactive energy, virtual batteries, connected homes, amongst other things, they're all trying to improve different components of the electric system and the energy system. So how do you then weave them together 
into an overarching story for PNNL? Well, I think the overarching story for PNNL is, you know, first of all, no national lab owns the infrastructure. You know, we don't own the market. What we try to do is put together new technologies in new ways that others will pick up and take out to the market. So Voltron is like a app on your iPhone, which is, you know, a $10 hardware system, a Raspberry Pi with some publicly available code. You can go out and help make a building more efficient just by interconnecting and getting different devices within a building to talk. And it can make decisions in real time that can save energy. So when we look at the total system, we look at our capabilities and say, where can we make a difference in the total system? And grid, real-time grid operations, real-time demand response, and new technologies that impact building efficiency and making buildings a asset for the grid, for grid services, is the area, one of the areas where we feel like, you know, we can make major contributions, and I believe we have, you know, over the last decade. You know, I remember reading the reports on GridWise and looking at the Pacific Northwest transactive grid and setting that up. When you were dealing with these systems of systems, you have to deal with so many different disciplines. You, know, you started off as a chemical engineer, and yet we're talking about electrical engineering, economics, human factors, behavior factors. How do you start sorting through these new ideas and topics that are coming at you, which might be unfamiliar as you're putting them together into this overarching themes? Yeah, it is impossible in today's world to be an expert in sometimes even one thing, and it's very hard to be an expert in many things. So uh, I do a lot of listening, and I listen to, you know, uh, utilities, and I listen to end users in all spaces. I go and, and hear from who I think are the, the best and brightest on the front lines in the market space, in the vendor supply chain. So I try to get a rounded vision of what the real opportunities and challenges are from the end users, because that's what really matters. You know, who will use it in the end and what would it take for them to use it? Then I go back within kind of the research world that I live in and try to talk to some of the best researchers in the country, both at PNNL and at other national labs and universities, and try to get a picture of where's the state of the art of cutting edge research. Then at least what I try to do is put all those pieces together. So you've got you know leading industries or utilities and you've got part of the vendor supply chain. So if the research ideas pan out, there's a catcher's mitt to take it and move it out, out to the market. And then the, probably the most important thing is you need a feedback loop because the market always changes. So you need those industry leaders who say, you know what, things have changed. Here's, here's where a demand response or energy storage really makes sense, and here's where it doesn't. And most importantly, you know, from a research point of view, and this is the thing I love about American industry. They are very clear on cost targets and performance targets, <laughs> you know, because they live on that edge where they've got to figure out where that is. And when they give us that information, it helps direct research. So who do you turn to for new information? The best new information is from talking to people. And it's a whole variety of different people. I, usually if I've read it, it's too late someplace. On the research side, you can you find new things. So, you know, like I said, we've got uh, regional utility partners that we meet with regularly. Um, we've got the Department of Energy's leadership is very knowledgeable in certain spaces because they talk to industry from all over the country. Now, it depends what area you're, you're in. We talk to people from cities. In, in my area, Washington State Department of Commerce 
you know, which has a really good handle on kind of where the, the focus of Washington State needs to be from an economic competitiveness point of view. Uh, we talked to, to researchers around the region this, and the nation and the globe, because not all ideas come out of the U.S. There's a lot of really good ideas, different markets out in the world, but really good ideas. So I can't say there's one person. I get my news from all different sources, and yeah. then I blend it together. The other challenge is what works in one part of the country doesn't work in another part of the country, especially when you're talking about grid. And so you've, you've got to have a view on kind of what the regional issues are as well. One of our guests from last season, Brewster Earl, he ran mechanical contracting for the largest mechanical contracting company in the U.S., mentioned that, sure, sometimes a great air conditioning technology in one part of the country just simply didn't work in another part of the country because of the weather pattern differences. And this idea, like technology idea of build it and scale it globally just isn't true within the energy sector. When you're doing this type of research, how granular do you have to get with your constraining of the problem and how global of these problems are you trying to look at? Well, I think certainly there's a hierarchy that the Department of Energy, you know, works on national and global problems. And then as a national lab, you know, we are working down on problems that are going to be first and foremost have a national or a regional impact, you know, both on American competitiveness and American energy use. That is our primary focus. I think always the benefit, there's a phrase the department's using right now, which I really like, which is innovate here, make here, deploy everywhere. That's what we should be doing. What I think about from a research point of view is when we take an area on, is it sustainable across the region and the national agenda? And if an American company was to take it, would it be able to fit into a global agenda as well? You've got to find those research-rich areas like energy storage, that if you could come up with the right energy storage material and others could move it on, would it hit the price targets and the performance where it could be deployed everywhere? Let's talk about the people that you work with. You run a team of over a 1,000 researchers, and we were talking about other stakeholders that you listen to, whether it's the Department of Energy, the state of Washington, universities, cities, and international stakeholders. How do you keep everyone aligned? and moving towards the same vision of deep decarbonization? Oh, man, I'm, I am so lucky. You know, I love my job because I get to work with just an incredible number of outstanding scientists and engineers in a whole bunch of different spaces. Anything we've accomplished is not because of me. It's because of all of them. And so, the you know, the way you get things lined up, at least my view in the research world, is, you know, you find that common vision that everybody can say is a hill worth going after. It's a challenge worth taking on. And then you get the best and brightest, and not just from PNL, but from all over. And you say, how would we attack this problem together? And so you make it so exciting and so compelling that people want to be a part of it. And they stay aligned because they see the big vision. If it's just, I want to get a research grant, that's not exciting and compelling enough. You know, you need to say, here's a big, important area, and it's a, it's a decade worth of, a, of challenges, and people will just start lining up when they see there's an opportunity to make a big difference. In some ways, it's trying to bring back that big science mentality of, here's this big, audacious goal. Let's try now chase after it. Yeah, and I think that's, a, to me, one of the wonderful things about the, the National Lab system is you could have a view of, I need to work on you know, five three-year projects. 
or you could have a view of let's go figure how figure out how to make the grid resilient, reliable, and flexible, so we can have you know large scale renewables, so we can have security you know of the entire infrastructure, so we can have distributed renewables. That's a much more exciting problem to get focused on. Where do these new ideas come from? These new research themes start from? Do they come from somewhere internal? Do they come from an external request? I think there's a whole bunch of mechanisms. So at the highest level in the Department of Energy in the world I live in, they are constantly having workshops with industry partners from around the U.S. who are helping to describe the big challenges that are worthy of a government investment, high-risk, long-term, multidisciplinary, where maybe the industry partner says, I'm not going to take this on, but boy, if you could make this energy storage device that's 10x cheaper than anything out there right now and lasts a week, we would be really interested and they'll follow it. Sometimes it comes from the research community itself who will see a gap in something that's not being explored and they'll bring it up. At least at PNL, sometimes it comes from management seeing a big space where you can put pieces together to go solve a problem faster. And a lot of times it comes from the researchers who will, I just love it, their passion. I was cornered once at a conference by my own researchers who said, we have to do this. We have to build intelligence and control it into buildings because it's going to be revolutionary in 10 years. So I think all over the places. It's about, it's about listening to everybody. These ideas, these nuggets are from everywhere, right? You just got to, yeah. sometimes they're on top of the rock. Sometimes you got to flip over the rock, but they're everywhere as long as you're listening. Yeah, that's right. And I think what's fascinating with what you do at PNNL is at the end of the day, you're in the business of innovation. How do you continue innovating being innovative? It's not just coming up with the new idea and filing a lot of patents, but how do you create those ecosystems where innovations thrive? And, and this is my view. To be an innovator, it's, it's one thing is to do good research, but it really, at the end of the day, the, the metric or the outcome is it went out in the world and it made a difference to society. And it made a difference to people. It saved energy. It made the, the infrastructure more secure, made regional energy more abundant. That's the real measure of those things. Uh, that's a hard one to measure sometimes because a, a, a patent is one thing. Whether someone actually took it out and it made a difference in the world is, is another thing. So I can give you lots of examples where we've done that and made different big differences of appliance standards, codes for buildings, some of the energy storage work we've done, the real-time situational awareness that goes out in the grid. But I do really think it's something we haven't cracked the nut completely on, is how to take our research base in this country and make sure it innovates not only for small companies, but for medium companies and big companies as well. And Jimmy, it's even a bigger challenge today with the rate of change that we have in everything we can measure, all the data that we have, now and how to turn that data into useful information that allows us to you know, be competitive at a global scale. We all know about the data deluge that we're facing, and that's in every industry sector, I think. And there's so many more companies today that are looking at generating even more data for us. And I seem to feel like there's this notion that, well, data will solve all problems. But yet, you know, if you gave me an Excel file and didn't tell me what it was, that doesn't I don't even want to take a look at it. You know, there has to be a little bit of context and interpretation of that into useful knowledge and useful actions. With PNNL, electrify everything, devices everywhere. 
how then do you take that data and turn it into something that a business person, a residential person would want to use? You're exactly right in your description. And I, I think I'll use our grid work as an example. So we can collect, uh, and we do, I think we collect more data than any other national lab or research institution on real-time grid telemetry. So it's not, a, not an issue of having enough data. We have high-performance computers, and we're continually figuring out new algorithms and way to take that data and process it into useful information. The challenge in the energy space, which is different than other sectors, is you have to take that data, turn it into useful information that allows somebody, either an individual or an automated process, to make a decision with high confidence. And that's the part where it's very, very special. And it's with high confidence. So if you're going to turn generators off, you know, or you're going to open breakers, you've got to have a high confidence. You understand the system view and your real-time data to do that. That's where the special sauce comes in. It's not about, not even necessarily about the speed that you collect data. We're collecting data at a fast enough speed. It's how fast can you turn that data into useful information that becomes the important part. So I actually, you know, when we talk about faster and faster internet speeds, that really isn't the limiting problem right now. The limiting problem is taking that data and turning it into high confidence, actual precision-based with accuracy decisions. I think one of my favorite statistics is when you look at the electric reliability standards in the U.S., when you do the math, it works out to be about 99.98% uptime average per person across the U.S. And the second highest reliable process is the Toyota Prius at 96%. Mm. So we're looking at a 4% doesn't sound like much, but when you're working at 96 and pushing it to 99.99%, that's actually quite a significant jump. Well, yeah, that's a great point because I think what we've all become accustomed to is every time we hit the light switch, the light comes on. When it doesn't, we believe something is, is wrong. I think that's a great segue into talking about the risks. Anytime we put in a new innovation into something that works that well, we run the risk of not having it run as well, purely because we're trying something new and trying something different. And so this brings us back to, I think, that cybersecurity. When we're talking about electrify everything and putting everything onto the grid, in some ways, we're also exposing everything to the risks of the electric grid, whereas previously, we might have been diversified in our energy sources, gasoline for the car, natural gas for my cook stove, and electricity for my computer. Now I'm taking all three of those energy sources and combining them into one source of energy and now exposing myself to one risk instead of just three different risks perhaps one of the largest risks that the electric sector faces is actually cybersecurity. First of all, let's start with what are some of the key risks of cybersecurity that the grid is facing that people might not be aware of? I know you've seen, you know, the number of, what is it, the billions of things that are connected to the distribution system or ultimately could be to the grid. It's just the number of entry points. I think everybody's seen where, you're, you know, a home camera can be overtaken by someone and, and used for something completely different. There's that challenge. Um, and then I think ultimately you, you have to filter through all of that and say what could really influence the security of the grid. And I think that's the challenge that we're facing right now is understanding those impacts and then figuring out ways to, to mitigate kind of the number of entry points into the grid. Do you think we're doing enough? Do you think there are further research points that we need to be able to cover on cybersecurity? 
Yeah, you know, again, if you go back to um, what you said at the beginning, if we're talking about the grid, it works pretty darn well. You know, there are always a few examples of somebody coming in and, and doing something to the grid or other parts of our infrastructure as well beyond on the grid. So I think it's always going to be a due diligence. It's going to be raising standards. And I think there are some very robust research programs going on that are trying to address it. And then the other part, uh, you know, more on the uh, backside is the, uh, and really a focus of the country right now, and I think an important focus is resiliency. You know, stopping attacks, whether it's man-made or it's natural, you know, weather events, getting the grid up and running. And that's where, on the flip side, all those sensors and the ability to see the grid allows you to respond much quicker. And we're starting to show with with high-performance computing, do contingency analysis, so you can make decisions quicker if something does drop out and still keep power flowing. I remember talking to a utility CEO when he was in running the company in the 90s saying that the way they knew when the power line was down was when customers would call and complain. They would know that part of the grid was down. And there's much better situational awareness today with these smart meters all over the place. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, you know, utilities do a phenomenal job of uh, you said it earlier, their three priorities are keep the lights on, keep the lights on, and keep the lights on. Yeah. And they do a really good job on that. If we think through the lens of PNNL being in the business of innovation, what do you think is the biggest risk to innovation? What worries me, so what keeps me up at night is, from a research point of view, is the world is moving so quickly. I have a, a great chart that shows technology innovation over the last 60 or 70 years and where it might have taken two decades or three decades for electricity infrastructure to be built in our country, and then two decades or three decades for TVs, for every house to have a, a television, then the phone infrastructure. Those were decadal-type changes. If you look at the last 10 years or 15 years, these big changes are happening in less than a decade. You and I probably think we've had our iPhone forever. We've only had our iPhone for the last, what, 14 or 15 years? And so, but, but it quickly becomes the norm. So my biggest worry is all these technology advances, uh, whether it's inexpensive uh, measurement technologies, whether it's data analytics, machine learning, AI, high-performance computing, I really believe it's going to revolutionize our ability to do everything. And so from an innovation point of view, and, and there's companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft and you name them who are moving much faster than the research community. It's how to import what they do and take it and apply it to innovation of research, innovation of energy research, and then innovation to our energy infrastructure quickly. And in addition to that, there are still basic fundamentals, the basic science, the basic technology, and ultimately building a, the basic infrastructure of the grid. Those are still decadal efforts to be able to achieve. When we start looking at research agendas, they can be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years long. How do you de-risk some of those longer-term research agendas to the 18-month short-termism of what we've gotten used to in the technology sector? A decade or so ago, maybe the technology sector thought that you could do it the same way in the energy sector, and you can't. And I think they all realize that right now. It's, it's not about writing some new software code and then selling it on an app. There's hard iron in the ground. You know, even if every car today was an electric vehicle, it takes 15 years for that vehicle fleet to turn over. So we are really looking at 15 or 20-year infrastructures. 
again, I, I'm so lucky in my job as a, at the National Labs, we get to think long term, but then we do get to think 18 months. Sometimes we're working with U.S. companies and they'll say, here is our biggest challenge. Can you use the complete set of scientific tools that you have, high performance computing to help us solve kind of this near term challenge that would allow us to move a technology out in the market? So we get both worlds a little bit. We're seeing a lot more happening in the field of energy storage and in smart buildings as these multiple systems are coming together. What are some of the latest activities on the energy storage side? Boy, you know, and I've been following that really closely. I was just at a great conference last week on that. I think everyone knows the price of lithium-ion batteries has dropped, you know, significantly over the last decade. It's down to the $150 per I think kilowatt hour for you know a, a system installation, it is just growing tremendously. It still needs to get down another maybe two to five x if it's going to be deployed ubiquitously. You know behind the meter long duration, but you're starting to see it combined with wind. You're starting to see it combined with solar. You're st starting to see it outcompete critical peaking gas turbines. Um, you're starting to see it being managed with buildings. I think there's nothing but upside. Then the next generation after that, from the innovation point of view, is what's the next chemistry that will be even better, longer, cheaper, more environmentally friendly? And that's now the next wave that people are working on. What, one last thing on lithium ion. You know, it was discovered in the 1970s, the idea that you could use lithium in the way that that battery works by Stan Whittingham and a few others, John Goodenough. It took 20, 25 years before it became practical for high-end uses like consumer electronics, another 20 years before it became practical for EVs and grid storage. So you're looking at a 40-year development cycle of a brand new idea to where it's practically available. See manufacturing growing all over the world. We have to, we have to shorten that innovation cycle as well for the next chemistry. You know, certainly the materials chemistry is a big passion of mine, being a material scientist guy, having to work on these chemistries. I know there's a lot of work at the lab on transactive energy and Voltron, we mentioned a moment ago, connected homes. Can you talk a little bit about the improved usage of these energy assets? Yeah, and for those who aren't familiar, what transactive means is you could take, you know, I think 75% of all our electricity roughly ends up in buildings. And so if you could have a building that is smart and that it's managing its electricity load, it's managing its thermal load, it's managing its, its rooftop unit to be most efficient and effective, and it was receiving a signal from its local utility or from the grid, it could respond to that signal from the grid, you know, either based on a stability or a cost, you know, metric. And so the, the only thing holding that back is the data that allows the building to do that and the interconnection with the grid. And as you said earlier, you know, the grid's got a lot of smart devices hooked up to it now. Didn't have that a decade ago. And more and more buildings have these smart devices. And Voltron, which you mentioned, is, again, just the ability for that building to manage and to receive signals from the grid and then automatically make decisions on the building energy load to respond to, for example, a price signal. At, at P&L, uh, we have a fairly big campus. We've got 16 of our facilities, our buildings, with Voltron technology. And you know we're trying to manage the many millions of dollars of our energy bill and manage it with our local utility to keep our demand charges down. As we start to get more renewables on the distribution side, as we start to get more energy storage, I just see all these things being interconnected, smart, and We'll use transactive, although some people call it kind of building efficient grid interactions. 
it's just become very commonplace. You know, sometimes people ask me, you know, what is the future of infrastructure going to look like? The answer I always give is it's when you don't notice it, when you don't have to talk about it. Yeah. When, when all of these technologies just simply work and we don't notice it anymore, that's when it becomes infrastructure. And, and by the way, I don't think the grid will go away for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the capital cost for any individual to remove themselves from the grid is still too expensive for the average person. Most of us can afford a utility bill. Most of us couldn't afford a huge capital investment to remove ourselves from that utility bill. Yeah, that's right. I think people lose sight that the purpose of the utility was to try to get the efficiencies of scale when we consolidated this energy infrastructure so that way not every single person had to go and buy their own $20,000 system or something. But when you put an entire neighborhood together, you just had to spend a million to satisfy everyone's needs. And there's some really progressive utilities who, who get it and are, are figuring that new business model out. So how do you create an innovation pipeline in R&D when we start looking at some of these 30-year problems and breaking them down into 18-month problems? The way we've tried to do it, and we've, I think we've been fairly successful as a national lab, is both on kind of the long-term problems that you take on that really you're not going to be moving out to market in the next three or five years. But at the same time, you're finding those technologies or near-term opportunities that you can have a off-ramp for a new technology that can go out to the market. Here's how we do it, and I think it is fairly effective, and I, I mentioned it earlier. You've got to talk to the people who actually use it in the field, the end users, and understand kind of really where the performance and price points are. Nobody takes the whole enchilada on, you know, the whole system change. Everyone, as you said earlier, takes on one part, makes sure they understand the risk. So in these national roadmaps, you you might have a roadmap with a 10-year goal. When we build them with U.S. industry, they all have near-term wins. And so, you know, it might be a new device that they can use. It might be something that's slightly more efficient uh, than the previous version. Sometimes it's simple as one of my favorite stories I love is working with a company in western Washington that had some automated controls. They ended up using Voltron to help them manage their rooftop unit, coordinated with the sensors throughout the house and the thermal load and the thermostats. The Department of Energy funded a study across many, many different building sizes and climate zones. As you mentioned, sometimes it works in one part of the country. Really, that's temperature and humidity. Did a study and showed, on average, just with a rooftop unit having a control device, it could save over 50% of its energy. And so that was a near-term win because now it had the data to back it up. It had data in different climate zones to show the effectiveness. I think the high was about 80-something, and the low was in the mid-20s. So as you said, it varied across the country, but now it was independently tested, verified in different environments, and they could take it to market where, where it could make a difference. That gets back into that innovation ecosystem that we were talking about. Sure, it has to come from the lab with the ideas and on the lab bench, and then it has to become a test. But then the ultimate test is commercial viability. The Department of Energy uses technology readiness levels, and TRL1 is just basic research, and TRL9 is systems operations and you know fully deployed. Where does National Labs sit in terms of moving technologies along that pipeline. And where do things tend to get stuck from your point of view? Without breaking down all of the TRL levels, some people don't live in TRL worlds, 
at the very lowest levels, the national labs perform that discovery-based science, which is not use-inspired or end-application-inspired. It's just understand some fundamental phenomena, make the fastest supercomputers in the world, make them in the U.S. too, by the way. Do that scientific research that kind of is that foundation, where I think we're the best in the world still, that leads to all kinds of innovations once a new phenomenon is understood and discovered. And then where the Department of Energy does is it, it takes those new discoveries and says, let's show at a prototype level the, a practical device. And sometimes it takes a long time, decades, to get a practical device that meets performance and, and some kind of cost standard. And then, and this is where the handoff gets trickier, is moving that out to industry and ensuring that it really is going to meet the performance and cost targets that industry would would require. That's where the Department of Energy then will allow some kind of demonstration to show at the smallest practical scale that the system will meet the, the market requirements. Then in our current model, and I really agree with it, it's industry's job to invest to move it to market. It's not the Department of Energy's job to move it to market. It's to show the technology, the system performs at a certain level and can make a difference to the U.S. energy infrastructure than the private sector moves it. From your point of view, technologies and universities, they have spin-outs all the time and licensing all the time. Two very gross generalization of commercialization pathways might be license to large company or create startup small company and let that technology grow. What are the advantages and disadvantages of those two pathways when it comes to energy technologies? I just see only advantages. If I start with big companies, they have the capacity and the systems perspective and the assets to move things in a big way. And they can create huge amount of jobs just applying new technology to their own infrastructure, like energy efficiency programs, and can move new ideas out to the market at scale in a very big way. But then there's other ideas that are probably some way too small for them and maybe too risky. And that's where the small companies, the spinoffs, the ones who have licensed technology, they fill that niche and they grow whole new areas up until they get into the billion dollar markets that big companies would pay attention to. We both have a couple of friends that are still rooting behind them, waiting for them to grow into those billion dollar markets. Yeah. I have a question from a fellow guest this season, entrepreneur Suzanne Singer. How are the national labs building entrepreneurial capabilities in order to go after some of those uh, startup pathways that you were talking about? Yeah, that's a that's one um, we've been working on for a long time, and so you know, what we often do is, you know, have uh, programs where our staff members can go work with companies or even take time off and work with small startup companies. Some cases they have one foot back at the lab, in other cases. You know, they are out with the company and making the company succeed and always have a pathway to come back with the lab. The other way is the Department of Energy has very formal programs trying to get small companies engaged with the national labs to help them understand where they could have more impact in spinning new ideas off. You know, I think the challenge of being a big organization like a national lab long-term thinking is first part of our DNA imprint isn't how do I make a bunch of money really quickly with a new idea? So getting those small JVs and those JV firms engaged with us has been just really helpful in finding those ideas. And then the, a lot of formal programs where small companies come through 
and help the labs figure out where those opportunities are. Certainly universities, I think, struggle with this question as well, especially on the research lab side. It's always fascinating training budding entrepreneurs and smart people, scientists, engineers, to be able to think more entrepreneurially. And I think there's probably a lot more similarities and commonalities than there are differences, and a lot of people yeah. don't realize that. And I think, Jimmy, it's, it, the, the National Lab you know, fits, fills a role, and some of that is to figure out how to spin things out. Um, but a lot of it is that longer term uh, creating scientific assets that the entire community, industry and academia can use that wouldn't be built up in any other way. Some people come in and say, well, the National Lab should be entirely like a joint venture. That's just not the role we fill. Uh, but we do have to optimize the part that supports that. As you reflect back on your career and you look at the action, the activities within climate actions, what brings you optimism about the future of climate action? It really has been around my entire career. And so the optimism I have is in some ways how much progress we've made, both at the state level, at the global level. When I started a long time ago, none of the infrastructure was set up that even addressed things at the global level or at the state level. Our state of understanding is much, much better with our, our models, both the global models and the, the regional models. I think everyone at a high level understands the impacts and understands that things are changing and we have to, we either have to adapt or we've got to get serious about mitigating. I think there's quiet successes, but again, not at the impact we need to get to a 90% reduction You know where we need. But what makes me optimistic is people keep fighting. And I mean that in the, we keep coming up with new carbon-free technologies. We keep coming up with alternative ways to move forward, cleaner ways to use energy, more efficient ways to use energy. Um, so certainly in the US, you know, there is some progress being made. And then the challenge is to make that happen globally and bring bring everybody in the world along. You work with a lot of people, a lot of partnerships. What are some unexpected collaborations that you find yourself in? The one that I'm, I'm really excited about, I wouldn't have thought this would happen, is finding ourselves working with Washington State around marine sciences and marine technology. And so, you know, when you look at the, the marine infrastructure, everything from electrifying the Washington Ferry Fleet and what are the best technologies to do that and the infrastructure to support that makes wonderful sense. When you start to look at the energy that goes into everything that surrounds agriculture, aquaculture, the coastal zones, it is a really important part of our ecosystem. I think there's billions of dollars into Washington State and a much bigger number for the nation I'm excited about energy in the coastal zones. It links everything from the current transportation infrastructure in the coastal zone, ocean-going vessels. That combined with agriculture on land is going to be the next focus from an energy point of view, competitive advantage and sustainability. That's a fascinating one. It brings water from a maritime point of view instead of a water consumption use point of view. Yeah. And there's a lot of power needs offshore, and I'm not talking about generating electrons offshore and putting them back onshore. I'm talking about all the energy that we use offshore for all kinds of things, even down to um, monitoring the state of the ocean. You know, there's a huge infrastructure to keep those buoys and those instrumented buoys functional with energy storage, and you have to have ships going out. What if we could make a longer battery so a ship didn't have to go out to the middle of the ocean every six months? So 
just some really interesting infrastructure challenges. When you mentor early professionals these days, what are some of the common challenges that you see them facing and how do you advise them about it? From a, a research point of view, research scientist point sure. of view? Sure. Um, work hard. You know, nothing, nothing replaces working hard. I just don't believe you can be a world-class research scientist working 40 hours a week. So there's the work ethic is never going to change. But more importantly, it's, we try to teach as many of our researchers this, ask yourself the big so what question. Why does my research matter? What important problem am I contributing to? You always want to contribute to the most important problem so you can have impact at the end of the day. And so we really try to focus on here's the important national challenge and here's your role in that national challenge. And why that's important from a research point of view is to be a world-class researcher, you've got to build up a body of work in an important area so you can move up in, in your national recognition and your impact. So I, I work hard, number one, but work on big, important problems. And then the other thing is work with others because no individual, no institution can solve it on their own. Build a national or international group of people working on these things together and really encourage critical thinking and challenging each other to get the best ideas moving forward. That's fantastic. Any last words? I hope this has been useful. I just, I'm so passionate about the national labs and the ecosystem that we just are so fortunate to work in. And, and I really do hope we can address and deliver on some of these big challenges we've been talking about. That's great. Well, Judd, thank you so much for your time and availability today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jimmy. You have been listening to the Lovers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change. Thank you.